Hi, this is Mark Woods. Thanks a lot for listening to the MVP cast. Hope you really enjoy it. And we wonder if you consider making a small payment to help us continue to make the podcast and all the other original content we deliver on a daily basis. If you can't, head to mvp247.com, click on the support MVP link and pledge whatever suits you. Thanks again and enjoy this edition. Welcome to the MVP cast for me, Mark Woods. Thank you so much as ever for listening to the podcast. If you like it, please hit the subscribe button and then you won't miss a single episode. Or if you can spare a few seconds extra, then leave us a review or share it on social media and help us spread the word. Now, our guest this time, an old friend of mine, a former NBA head coach who's better known to us on this side of the pond for heading up our national team for six years. He led Great Britain's men reaching Eurobasket finals. But his most recent gig, and not a bad one on what's a pretty impressive resume, put him at the helm of Team USA as well. Joe Prunty, welcome to the MVP cast. Thanks, Mark. It's wonderful to be on and great to catch up with you. Where in the world do we find you? Uh, over in the States, over in Arizona, uh, where it's uh, early in the morning, yet it's still a cool 85 degrees. I can't do the translation into hot, Celsius. but hot, I think, in any uh, language. It, it is very, yes, it is very warm. <laughs> we'll talk about the GB and we'll talk about the, your, your extensive uh MBA career in a moment, but uh, let's go back a few months here. Yeah, you're you're on the sidelines again as the USA head coach when you know, the states played its latest round of America Cup qualifiers in February. That's the equivalent of our Eurobasket qualifiers, and I'm sure for you that was quite the special experience. Oh, it was amazing! Absolutely amazing. Really appreciated it. Uh, you know, not only to to first be an assistant coach in the November window, but uh, then to become the head coach in February. Uh, Loved both experiences, uh, appreciated them immensely. And, uh, you know, I've also, you know, not only coached some great players, but have gotten to know some amazing people as well along the way. I mean, you were assistant, as you said, to Mike Fratello in the previous window. And, you know, for everyone who can observe this, I mean, this the America Cup qualifiers, mainly with G League players, I mean, completely different to the lineup that your your former colleague, Greg Popovich, will, will presumably take to the Tokyo Olympics. But, well, you know, what's, what's the kind of process of bringing that kind of group together? You know, because it can be very different players in very different windows. Uh, it's a great point. And, in fact, it, it was. We... For the two windows that I was involved, uh, we did not have one player that was the same. So uh, definitely different players, uh, literally in terms of uh, not having one guy that was the same, but also a different different circumstances under which we were trying to um, assemble a team. And what I mean by that is in November, uh, the NBA season hadn't quite started. The G League season was up for debate as to how that was going to be handled. Uh, players were still trying to figure out uh, opportunities overseas. Um, some maybe have had them. Some maybe were still working on them. Others were not sure as to the route they were going to go. So our team in November uh, was very um, similar in age, 
uh, similar in experiences. A lot of guys that had either been in the G League, had known each other, uh, some that obviously had played overseas as well, a few guys that had some NBA experience. Whereas in the February window, now you were looking at circumstances for players where they, the NBA season was already in full swing, as everybody was is aware of. Uh, the G League was uh, going on or about to be going on. Um, guys were signed overseas to contracts. So it was that group was built with a wide variety of um, experiences, meaning Joe Johnson, who's been, uh, you know, a multi-time all-star all uh you know, an outstanding player, an Olympian, uh, been, you know, so been involved with USA basketball uh, to a guy like, uh, you know, KJ Fagan, who um, hadn't even signed his or played in a pro game uh, or signed his first contract. And ironically, uh, we got to our first practice and he did sign a contract uh, and had to leave the team and is having an outstanding season over in Bulgaria. But you can see the diversity of the group with a, a 39-year-old who's got a wealth of experience all to all the way down to a 22-year-old who hadn't played a professional basketball game yet. What's a, is there a future in this? Because obviously Jeff Van Gundy coached this group at this sort of level for a few years and went to, he went won the America Cup. I mean, is this a permanent role? Where does it, where does it go forth for you from this? Well, the circumstances are, it changes, right? It depends on what uh, is going on in, in uh, sometime in your situation, meaning so uh, the three coaches that have done this in the windows are Jeff Van Gundy, Mike Fratello, and myself. And I know I spoke with both of them, obviously Coach Fratello, I worked with him and he was amazing in so many ways. Um, you know, not just the basketball aspect. Um, somebody st that I still talk to uh, as regularly as you can in this business um, when you're just tra traveling and doing as much as you are. Um, and he's really keeping busy uh, with his broadcasting. So uh, it's not always easy to stay in touch. But the point is, uh, you know, I leaned heavily on them in terms of asking questions like, uh, you know, the practice plans in regards to the time frame that you have to work with um you know looking at the games and the travel and being on the road as opposed to being at home um you know so that having been said uh i would love to continue doing it but one of the things that uh impacted me even doing it with great britain is that when you have another job it's very difficult to, or when you have a, a full-time job coaching in those windows is uh i don't want to say impossible but virtually impossible and so uh it just it's to be determined so to speak let's look at great britain you took over in 2013 and went all the way to you know 2017 two euro baskets uh, amongst all that i mean let, let's go back to very first principles where did that path to succeeding chris finch and the rule come from well, the initial conversation started with, uh, I remember, I still to this day remember getting the phone call, uh, being asked, uh, Lee Hine had called out and said, do you have, would you have interest in coaching the Great Britain national team? And I, I was, uh, to a certain degree, very surprised. Um, uh, 
wasn't even sure I fully believed it. <laughs> um, but then he went through explaining the process of the amount of people, the magnitude of the search that they were con conducting, um, the amount of coaches that they were speaking with, uh, on the amount of continents. I believe they, I think they spoke with uh, coaches from five different continents trying to, ex you know, put a, a wide, cast a wide uh, search for a, a coach for the national team. Um, so I started that process with him and, excuse me, eventually, uh, spoke with the board, but it was, uh, I would say one, two, at least five interviews. Um, I believe that there was going to, there was there at one point they did say that they would like to, with the last few candidates, try to have, uh, in-person interviews, but, as it got down later, I think they, and this with technology, we ended up doing some stuff over Skype. Um, obviously even that's become more prevalent now <laughs> with zoom and things like that. And, uh, the circumstances that we're in, but the point is, uh, it, it started with an initial phone call from Lee Hine and then, uh, eventually we're speaking with Roger Moreland, Warwick Hahn, um, and, you know, accepted the job and it was I just remember I think I was in Dallas I, I think I was in Los Angeles when I got the phone call uh, that initially started it Dallas when the position was offered to me um, in terms of physical location not the teams I was with um, and that started the ball rolling and I, I know finishing out that season uh, for, with the Cavaliers was really important, but I started immediately in terms of trying to figure out uh, ways to touch base with the players, get a mindset for where everybody was, and start building a program. How much did you, or did you, in fact, you know, reach out to our, our two fine NBA experts from the, the BBL, Chris Finch and, and Nick Nurse, for whatever insights they could provide? Yeah, I talked to, I, you know, I've talked to both uh, more Chris um, than Nick at the time. Uh, with Chris, I remember sitting down with him in Las Vegas uh, at Summer League and really trying to get a feel for uh, as much as I could. Not And part of it with Chris that was difficult was, you know, not only did he change, but so did so many of the other people involved in the program, meaning um, like Warwick was kind of taking on a new role. There were other people in the administrative side that were going on to different things. So it was with Chris, he was explaining certain things with people that weren't even going to be in the program, which he, that's what I needed to hear from him because that's what he had gone through. So now it was just a question of the new people that were coming in on the board or the new people that would be involved, whether it was, um, and it wasn't all these people, but any position that you could think of, whether it was uh, the medical staff, whether it was the administrative staff, whether it was the national team's director, whatever it was, there was quite a bit of change at that time. And so just getting insight over to the general mindset from, from him was, was really helpful at the time. Um, but again, with all the change, uh, it was going to be different as well. I mean, that I mean, coming off the back of London 2012, when it was, 
a there was more funding but there was a structure there and a you know that had built up over seven years really as well you know there were a lot of veteran players who reached the end of the road internationally wise after those olympics and you, you arrive and you know it's it was different what, what was your sense of what you find upon landing on the ground when you really get a proper sense of what's going on of what this program was as you're you know preparing to head straight into the thick of the action at the 2013 Eurobasket. Right. I, I think one of the things that surprised, there were a couple of things that surprised me. Um, one was there was, there was a lot of frustration with things, the way things had gone. Um, there was a lot of concern for players as to uh, the experiences that they had had. Uh, and there was a lot of people who looked at the London Olympics as a destination rather than part of a journey. Mm -hmm. They looked at it as, okay, well, we just have to get here. And once I realized that was the case, um, basketball for a little bit for me, became a little bit secondary in terms of it. I knew that we, you know, I had to have a, a plan on how I wanted to play or how we wanted to play. I knew that we had to have, uh, you know, a good system in place on both sides of the ball. What I didn't realize was after accepting the position and starting to have conversations with people is how many guys were just frustrated with how things had gone. And now it was a question of how can we make this work? I can't necessarily speak to what has happened. I can tell you what I see happening moving forward. And so lots of conversations with guys like Andrew Sullivan, Dan Clark, Kieran Achara, who all played. Lots of conversations with Luol Deng, Joel Freeland, Joel's agent, uh, Pops Mensabansu, guys that didn't play. Um, those conversations, ironically, um, continued to evolve not only at the beginning, whether they did or didn't play, but they grew um, each year. Uh, I still talk to most of those guys at one point or another uh, at, at some point during during a calendar year and uh, have built very good uh, friendships and relationships with a lot of these young men that at the time were just, this is where they were in their careers. And their careers even evolved from, from those points in, in different directions. So... Uh, ultimately for me, the, the initial starting point with a lot of the, or with the program was getting in touch with a lot of the guys and getting a feel for where they were and what their thoughts were about the program. Sure. Where it is now, but really where it can go moving forward. I mean, I always look, I didn't piece with someone a few weeks ago about the missed opportunity coming out of the Olympics. And, you know, people talk about the legacy, you know, of, of the games generally, but I always felt that 2013 was the real missed opportunity if that group, and okay, there were, there were players like the late, much miss Robert Archibald who had re retired, but there was still lots of that London yes. 2012 team who'd gained that experience over the years and were at, still in their primes. And that could have gone to that tournament with that and really done something special. And for me, that was the, the, the thing that, 
the, where the ball got dropped or the opportunity got missed. You, you, some of those guys you mentioned there that you'd spoken to, what, what was your real sense of, and you know, particularly, you know, Lowell, Joel, etc. Pops is probably in that category. What was your real sense of why, when it came to that tournament, that they, they just took a pass? Well, I, I agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, if we have Luol, Pops, and Joel, the team would have looked drastically different. And, the, and then there's guys like, I mean, we didn't even mention Mike Lensley, who was mm. a guy that I spoke with, um, you know, not only about possibly playing, but uh, then eventually about what he was going to do career-wise when basketball was done. And here's a guy that I've never even met face-to-face, but that was important to me to have conversations with those guys. So again, with Luol, Pops, and Joel, I, I didn't focus as much on them not being there as much as I focused on the players that we did have. Um, and before I get to those guys, one of the things that was interesting throughout the whole uh, friendlies in our, the campaign was uh, Dan started out with us in St. George's Park, um, but then he left to go be with his club team. And uh, ultimately, we had gone to pretty much every destination that we had played in because uh, we, we left London, went to after St. George's Park, came to London, went over to Finland, down to Greece, uh, up to Poland, over to Spain. Well, Dan uh, rejoined the team in Spain, and I thought that was huge. Like that was, you know, he realized how important the national team was to him. And I, that's something that I appreciated and wanted to focus on more. Um, the guys that did show up, the guys like Soli, uh, Kieran Achara, um, you know, Andrew Lawrence, the guys that committed to coming back and playing Ogo, uh, Ogo Adeboye, who, uh, you know, had some good moments for us uh, at Eurobasket. So, again, I think recognizing who committed to doing it, and again, a lot of those guys have continued forward um, as long if they've continued with their career. So to your point with Joel pops and Luol, I think each guy's situation was different. Um, and the experiences that they had were uh, somewhat telling for them in terms of why they would or wouldn't go on, but just also where they were in their careers and what they felt they needed to do uh, to continue having the careers that they were having. That's why when you look at a lot of these teams around the world, players don't play every year. They, they just don't. Um, and in England, or in the UK, I should say, for GB basketball, it wasn't like if certain players didn't play, it made for a bigger storyline than talking about the players who did. So... Luol, Joel, Pops, again, each one of them had different circumstances. I mean, I know uh, for Pops, uh, he he still had desire to play for the national team years after that. We, we, we were talking on a pretty regular basis, um, you know, not every year, but just, hey, coach, where are things? How are things going? Uh, you know, he cared about the program. It just didn't work out for him. Uh, Luol, a lot of his stuff revolved around contracts and could we afford uh, the insurance? Um, you know, where you say that year, the 2013 year was important. 
It was um, because each year is important, but we had a good showing. We were two and three, and if we could have found a way to, uh, you know, I think we lost to Belgium by three or five. Mm -hmm. If we could have found a way to win that one and go in three and two, we would have advanced. Uh, if we could have beat the Ukraine, who jumped on us pretty early, it could have the Ukraine who jumped on us pretty early. Um, then we could have advanced and then we would have been in, dip, in a different circumstance. Um, so the following year, that's the year that I think was really those next two years after that Eurobasket to me became really critical from the standpoint of the advancement of the program. How did you find that? initial experience of coming into international basketball because it's very different to the NBA and you know there's there's a certain political aspect behind the scenes you know you're you're trying to you know from a scouting purely game strategizing point of view you're learning all these new you know new coaches new players that you'd never heard of before from the European scene what was that like for you as a, as a head coach coming in was that a baptism of fire or did it feel pretty seamless uh that's a great question. I've, I've never really thought about it, I guess. So to a certain degree, it was seamless in that I was still coaching basketball. Uh, yes, it's different. There are different rules, a little bit different style. The shorter game makes a, a, a big impact relative to the, the NBA. But I really loved it. I, I really do love it. I, I enjoy the international game. I enjoy both. Um, and so, and I guess really ultimately what it comes down to is I really enjoy basketball. So in the States, whether you have a 32 minute high school game, a 40 minute college game or a 48 minute program pro game, they're all, there's nuances to each one, but it all still is basketball. And it's, it's, it, they're all exciting. Same thing with the international game. Um, I love the enthusiasm and the passion of the crowds. Um, you know, playing the, you know, just thinking about our last playing uh, Turkey in Istanbul, um, you know, going to play Bosnia in Bosnia. Some Those are some wonderful venues to go play in because of the passion of the fans. But um, I, I, I think really I just went into it as, okay, I, let's, let's evaluate the team that we're putting together. What's the best way to approach it i know i have my system and my style and things that i like to do but i also have to look at the players and make sure it fits them and the team that we assemble um you know loved watching international the opponents uh but the international coaching and the different things that teams run and uh, like all coaches try to take some of the things that they do and see how it would fit uh with our team at that time but also put things away and keep them for uh, possibly next opportunities and if those things will be better with a different team or in a different situation. So I, I really loved it. Uh, I think for me, the coaching was still coaching and there, yes, there were things to learn. Um, like I said about rules and the game and the flow of the game and so on and so forth. But there was a lot of, there was a lot more administrative things that I know I need to, to pick up on, like the travel throughout Europe and, getting from point A to point B and realizing that, yes, it might be a three-hour flight to get from Greece to Poland, but when you factor in getting there two hours earlier, uh, the layover <laughs> in another city, the bus ride 
the two hour bus ride once you arrive. So when somebody that's not on the ground with the team says, oh yeah, it's a three hour flight, but then you realize it's a nine to 10 hour day, that's a different deal. And, and those were things that I, I learned very quickly and, and, it, and it helped me and I think the program moving forward for how we planned uh, campaigns and the friendly schedules. I mean, there was a real difference even from 2013 to 2015. And, you know, 2013, there was still the UK sport funding and that was still still there. Then it kind of all, the, in a sense of financially, it bottomed out and the, there was insurance issues. The, certainly the quality of the hotels that the teams were staying at, both for men and women, was dropping by then. Uh, how, how much of it, you, know, you were very committed to this programme. But was there a pause for thought for you at any point in going, this isn't, this is not what I quite what I signed up for here? No, and I understand the question. Um, although there were a lot of things that I didn't sign up for per se, I never thought of walking away. I, from from my perspective, it was. Once I really started doing the dive into the conversations with the players and the people and that were now coming into the program, uh, this whole thing was always about gaining the enthusiasm and the passion for the game that can be there. Uh, there is talent in the Great Britain program. Um, there are players that uh, have or have not played in the system, you know, meaning the age groups in the, in, for the national team uh, that are really good. And the sport to me has, can continue to grow. And that's one of the things that I've always been excited about watching the program evolve is I was, I was a little, dis there's so many people that have been on the outside looking in and saying, Hey, I can do that. And I can do this and we can do this and we can do this and this can be better and the infighting to me within basketball is like let's let's just knock off the nonsense and let's get down to the meat and potatoes and one of the things that for me was meat and potatoes was the players wanting to be a part of it the players wanting to to take ownership of hey this is this is our program and we can do special things and that's why when i you know, even though I was with Team USA, I was keeping track of what was going, like um, Luol coaching in, for South Sudan. I was keeping track of that and was trying to stay in touch with him and tell him what a great job he was doing. Uh, I was watching Eurobasket and checking out those scores and seeing how um, how we were, uh, how Great Britain was doing. And I like the way you just called up me there. I thought it was good. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Um, but, I, uh, you know, Coach Fratello and I in November were checking on both the Ukraine and Great Britain because we want to see the, yeah, exactly. We want to see the team succeed. And so for me to follow this GB team and see that 11 of the 12 guys that played in, in this past uh, window were guys that either played uh, while I was coaching the program or guys that I helped recruit um, and started initial conversations with um, guys that 
again, in 2014, people were, instead of being consumed with, hey, well, this guy's not playing, that guy's not playing, I was consumed with, how do we go get this guy to play? How do we get, uh, you know, one of the players who played in the pre in the November window, didn't play much, is a young man by the name of Rex Fluger, who I believe is playing in the BBL. For Newcastle. Rex, Rex was a guy that I found, uh, found out he was, you know, had British ties and was speaking to him just as he was graduating from high school and beginning to start his career at Notre Dame. And this was a guy that I felt like, hey, moving forward with his pedigree, with his, you know, watching him and his athleticism, uh, this is a guy who could really help the program, not necessarily right away, but I want to get him involved as quickly as possible, but for sure in the future. And unfortunately, he's had some injuries throughout his career that have kind of made his career go in a different direction, but he's still a very good player and someone that's worthy of keeping an eye on to have in the program. Um, and that's how fine a line it is, is the difference between being able to compete for a spot on the national team and make it the national team is a very fine line. And that's what I wanted to help build was not just guys that say, I'm going to be on the national team just because, but guys that have to go out and earn it because we have a depth chart of like 15 guys that, man, this guy, these point guards are really, really good and these wings and so on and so forth. So the challenges for me ultimately started uh, after that first Euro basket when you're right, we, we did we did not have great circumstances, but that's what we had. And so rather than focusing on that, and I remember Kieran had an article come out talking about some of the problems, hey, rather focus on that let's just try to control what we can control and again this podcast could go in a million different directions in terms of how some of the things were handled that second year but we just had to do the best with what we had and then it led to the third year where we weren't even going to have a program yet work was able to put something together we had one game against new zealand solely got his 100th cap which was you know a spectacular accomplishment and a lot of young guys got uh, their first taste of experience with not only international basketball, but GB basketball. And I think that really started to push us in the right direction. How much were you aware? I mean, we had conversations, I, I recall, with you at the time about you know, the politics. But how much did you, how much did you really kind of get a, a, a sense of the sort of polit- politics that sits within British basketball that you know, is, is a source and a cauldron of frustration for so many people and has been over the years yes it's you know probably nowhere near as much as uh is needed from the standpoint of finding a way to come to some resolution partially because there has been no resolution and that's one of my levels of frustration um is that you know, I took over the program in 2013, and my first thought was, okay, we need to make sure that these guys and the players are committed to wanting to be a part of this, to be a part of something bigger than yourself, to help grow the program, uh, to be committed to one another, and to stay in touch with one another. And issues that you have, hey, figure what they are. Um, I, I think one of my 
biggest concern, excuse me, biggest concerns through it all was I, I understand the, the different groups that are fighting for how what's best for for British basketball moving forward. But I think one of the hardest things was, you know, Warwick was doing a really good job and, and he opted to go a different direction. And we had several different people come in as uh, the board of directors, you know, like one year it's Roger Moreland, the last year that I was there as Lisa Wainwright. Um, Mark Clark came in as a national team's director. He didn't stay very long. Um, and there was so much turnover. Um, that, like in my five years, I think I was dealing with four different chairmen of the board. And so each year you're having the same, having the same conversation with a new person. And that part is difficult because you feel like you're okay, here's where we are. And how do we get out of this? And then the, the people that are in these spots don't stay there long enough to make the impact that you would hope that they could. Um, now, that's having said all that, I know there's also like, oh, there's connections to the BBL and there's uh, UK bat or uh, UK sport and British bas or GB bat or you know British Basketball Federation and there's. Um, England basketball, and it, it, so I understand all the the different entities pulling or pushing in a different direction, but somehow there has to be a common ground, and if that common ground can finally be established instead of pushing and pulling, I, I just think there's a lot of positive things that can come out of it, and I think there is a push to try and get there. I, I do, um, for my limited exposure to it. Um, but again, it remains to be seen. I mean, you can tell the tone of your voice that these things matter to you, and you know the level of commitment. You know, I I hear players you know who've had a text from you or a call from you in the years since for that. Did it surprise you deep down when you think back to when you arrived? Did it surprise you just how emotionally invested you became in the fate of basketball in our humble little country? No, uh, that was one of the reasons I had interest in it. I, I, I like there was a level of excitement from the standpoint of, hey, the London Olympics just happened. Uh, there was a level of excitement that, uh, you know, British basketball had gone through this extensive search. I mean, what I was told was there was 160 people on five different continents that were uh, potential candidates. And I became the person that was chosen. And that's a big honor. Like that, that, I don't know if that's true. Even if it's not, I'm still in charge of this program with Warwick Khan, uh, with the other people on the administrative staff, with the board of governors, uh, with the assistant coaches and the medical staff that we assemble. And this is our responsibility to move this forward. So no, it was, like I said, my intentions were clear. I wanted to build a successful program and a sustainable one. Like, for example, one of the things that I had decided when I got the job was in terms of building my staff, I told them I really would like to have somebody, a British coach, uh, and I, it doesn't, you know, someone from Great Britain that 
has interest in this program, that wants to coach, that wants to develop. Um, would have loved to have had more uh, local coaches coming to our camps and doing more things with them, whether it's sit-downs in clinics and have them present, have me present, uh, just get to know one another, uh, dinners if we could do that, uh, anything to help build the program and build the connection. Uh, these are all things that I thought of early on. But no, my, my thought early on was how can I get somebody involved in the program? And I, I asked numerous people. I asked players. I asked coaches. Uh, I asked people in, in British basketball. Who, who wants to coach? Who wants to be a part of this? So I asked, like, um, does Robert Archibald want to do it? Does um, Andrew Betts want to do it? Does, you know, who were just some of the people that were possibilities? Because I didn't know everybody, and I wanted people. And the name that kept coming back was Nate, Nate Reinking. Um, and that's another uh, coach who has uh, tremendous passion for British basketball. You know, obviously he played in the I – mean, we. I remember playing one of our – games and I can't remember if this was our uh, during the 17 or the 16 campaign but just saying that there's a guy in this locker room that's been a part of this program every year every year that this program has been in existence he's been a part of it and that's a heck of a statement and it was Nate he played he helped grow like he went to places to play games to represent Great Britain that a lot of people uh, not only didn't, wouldn't have done, but didn't do, um, and helped get that program to where it was and then became a coach. Uh, you know, he was an Olympian, but uh, became a coach and then helped build the program more in that regard. Uh, I know when he took over, the program had kind of taken a dip, and that's one of the things that bothered me was the, the regression it for a year or so after I left. Um, but now that passion and enthusiasm is back, and I give Nate a ton of credit for that because one of the things that he's done is he can't be there when he's here coaching his team. And one of the things we discussed was with the previous uh, administration was do you want me to continue coaching in the summers and we get one of the assistants to coach in the windows? And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And it didn't work out, the, the route that they went. Um, but fortunately, we're back on track. And what I would say is, you know, Nate um, allowing Mark to coach the team kept some level of continuity. And I think it's, we've seen this part of it work. And so, no, I, I, I'm very excited in the direction that it's going, but there's a long, long way to go. I mean, the journey for you came to an end in, in 2017 in, in Eurobasket in the group stages in Istanbul, you know, G went 0 and 5. You know, the closest to the one was that five point loss to Latvia. And, you know, this was the downside of that tournament. There wasn't a healthy Miles Hessen available for it. But, you know, it was, it was a growth for the team. And, you know, there was, it was a tough, you know, it was tough sometimes putting those rosters together. You know, those you know, guys here and there who may have been a difference maker being in or out. Of, but 
the experience of some of those games. I mean, playing you know, Turkey in Istanbul is always a mama thing because the atmosphere is like nothing other. And you go to those, sometimes, you know, I remember with the team, we sometimes went to really small, obscure cities that frankly, even I'd never heard of before. Um, what, what memories stick out in terms of, you know, the places that you were able to go to in this credible five-year road trip? Well, let, let me, before I go to the places, and then you may have to remind me to come back to all the places, but uh, one of my favorite experiences from that actual um, Eurobasket was being, we had just finished our game against Serbia. And uh, Coach Georgevich, who I have a ton of respect mm. for, um, just sitting in the coaches' meetings or um, before the tournament even began, listening to him uh, address concerns about how things might be handled or uh, presenting ideas, uh, really was impressed with, you know, his mind and, uh, you know, how he coached his team as well. But we were in the back and um, – game had just ended and it was it was a competitive game uh, again lost uh in a game that was close and having a good conversation with him and uh Milos Makvan um, who is an extremely talented player in so many ways now he's not the most athletic player per se but just a great basketball mind very skilled good passer um just does a lot of solid things on the basketball court and he and I were just having a brief conversation. And one of the things that he said to me, totally unsolicited, was he said, this is one of the best British teams I've ever seen. And he said, in fact, it probably is the best team I've ever seen. And he said, I don't necessarily mean you have the most talent I've seen, but you guys play really hard. You play really smart. And I truly believe that if you were not in this group that you would have advanced. Mm -hmm. He said this group is just, and he didn't call it the group of death. Some people did, but if you were not in this group, you would have had a great opportunity to advance because you got that good. And I, that meant a ton to me because it was, like I said, unsolicited, uh, a very, uh, an outstanding player who's had a very good career, uh, from a very well-coached team, uh, and he didn't have to say it. So uh, things of that nature I, that I've heard through the years, I really appreciated. Gabe Olashaney on the podium uh, said some amazing things. And he, again, the thing that sticks out is that, you know, if, you know, he remembered all the times that I had reached out and that, you know, one of the reasons that he played for Great Britain was because of me, and that's what excites me is that he keeps playing, that he keeps representing the country. And, and it took a lot to get him there to begin with, but it's been, it has meant so much to him. And so those are things that I'll, I will always remember. But I think that the, just the different places, that there are so many special places to go and so many wonderful people to see. Some people that you know and you talk to and you're with that you're friends with, but then others that you just come across, uh, you know, like maybe you're in a translator in, in Turkey or uh, somebody that, you know, maybe you get their number and you stay in touch as best you can. It's hard on a day-to-day -day basis. And so 
going to Istanbul, Turkey for the second time. I had done a camp there, uh, but to be able to bring my kids there and to see uh, just a special place in the world um, with so many historical references. Um, you know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the best last, but uh, I remember even just going to Poland and the, the guys, the, the coaching staff from Israel was giving me a hard time because my family had, uh, I had paid for my family to come to Poland as well. And they were mad. They said, you bring your family over to Poland, but you don't bring them over to Tel Aviv and to Israel. And they were very disappointed in you. And, and you know, but it was great to, to take the ribbing from them to, you know, that they were giving me a hard time. Uh, because it meant we were, they felt comfortable enough with me to do that. And, uh, but again, going to Israel and being able to go see some of the things that we saw outside of um, the basketball, and they treated us uh, very, very well. Um, you know, going to Iceland and uh, landing, we landed at like two in the morning, or maybe it was one, but then had to take a, a long ride and then getting up the next day. Uh, you know, basically, it's just light all day there at that time of year. And, um, you know, so it, it just there, there are so many fascinating things. But then being able to go to all the different places in England. I mean, London in and of itself is spectacular. Not, and this is the best for last, right? Like just all the different things you can see. Um, you know, and I not only went over there as the coach, I, I went there a couple of times with the NBA teams that I was with and got even got opportunities to see even more things. Um, but going out to St. George's Park and what a spectacular investment that is for, you know, the national football team that, you know, the amount of fields and uh, the commitment to have so many pitches. I remember going into the indoor pitch, the full size one and looking over it and thinking to myself, this and I'll call it a field, but this, you know, this field is massive. Like just being in awe of the size of the pitch, like how big it is. Um, you know, I'm trying to corner kick and I'm barely getting it to the goal box. Uh, <laughs> now that's a little bit of an, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but, um, you know, you just realize how big it is. Um, you know, we were in Manchester and getting to go to a Man City game trying to go to a Man U game, but going to the Man City game and listening to the fans and the passion. Um, and, you know, being in the copper box and hearing that same passion, you know, there's an enthusiasm for basketball there that I just think is untapped at the moment to a certain degree. Um, and I think there's a lot of people with a lot of great ideas. And so I got to do and see a lot of special things. And like I said, I can go on and on about all of Europe and London and England um, and going to Worcester and, you know, all the different places that we went. But I'm very appreciative of all the experiences that I was able to have. I mean, we talk about the players that you, you brought through and, you know, that are still the, the core of our, well, it's not even the core, most of the, the, the team at the moment. There's one guy I want to ask you about, and I say he's coming on the podcast soon. But he was a player that you brought in and that it was to the surprise of some people and it was equally to the surprise of some people he became one of your regular starters and one of your go-to guys throughout your entire tenure and has now gone into coaching and that's Gareth Murray what did you see in Gareth who you know wasn't at a big college he was at a very small junior college was a guy that won his place in the BBL through a tryout you know wasn't a heralded player in any way 
And here's this impressive guy who made himself better and, and became a starter on the national team at tournaments. What was it you saw on him? A, that as a player that you gave him that role, but you know perhaps that you thought, this is a guy that could go on and be a coach as well. Stability. This was a guy, consistency, stability. He was going to, you knew what you were going to get from him. Um, and you also knew that where there were so many people that would think about, well, I have to score or I'm a more heralded player. Like, like my, my story is I've, I've signed big contracts and I've been the man and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that he never came in with any preconceived notions other than I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to give you everything that I can. I'm going to do the best that I can for you. And there were times, you know, we actually had an instance where there was confusion. We were in London, um, out, uh, West, was it Westfield mall? Yes. That, the, yes. And that's, we were staying out there and we had some confusion and long story short, Gareth actually left the team, uh, briefly, but it was never with the intent that you're not going to be a part of it. Um, and we get that cleared up. But the, the thing with him for, for me was I knew I can count on him to do what he needed to do. If he had a shot, I you know, I thought he can knock this down. Now, I always was going to want more, as you always do as a coach, but he could make an open shot. Defensively, he was going to know the system and he was going to take on the toughest assignment. And so what I'm proud of is that, you know, for as much as people questioned it, when you have somebody that you know every day that this is what you're going to get from them, there, there's a value in that. And now, Obviously, when it's a superstar and you know you're going to get 20 points and 10 rebounds from this play, every day we knew in San Antonio what we were going to get from Tim Duncan. Every day in Dallas, we knew what we were going to get from Dirk Nowitzki. And I can, you know, Brooklyn, Kevin Garnett, um, you know, I can go up and down the list of guys that I've been blessed to be a part of that are superstar, elite-level players that – not only did you know what you were going to get, but it was going to be spectacular. Gareth might not be spectacular in terms of what he does or how he does it, but he was there every time. He was he was always available. He was always committed to the team. Oh, like I remember our game against France in the first Eurobasket. We talked about how this is what Nick Batum is going to feed the post. He is going to cut baseline. They're going to try to hand it to him, and we just got to make sure we take that away. And literally on the first play, here's the guy that I'm telling you is the most reliable, dependable player that we had in terms of just doing what his job was. Not necessarily the best player, but he, he was consistent. And on the first play of the game, Nick Batum feeds post, cuts baseline, gets the ball, gets a dunk. And I look immediately out on the court, and Gareth is like, he's, you know, looking at me like, you know, patting his chest or, you know, he knew he messed up. But for as frustrated as I was, it was like, hey, I told you we have to take this away. 
I also know that it was never going to happen again. So I was really upset that it happened at the moment that it did because we talked about it. But sometimes you just have to go through something one time, and that's the whole thing with go through it one time, and then he knew how to fix, fix, figure it out. And I think he's going to have a great career as long as he wants to continue doing it. Um, I respect and appreciate the level of commitment that he's made to the program. Uh, great family man and, uh, you know, a, a guy that, again, try to stay in touch with, you know, a couple of times a year as best I can and uh, always welcome the opportunity to chat with him. Do you see him as a guy that could go a bit like Nate, that could be that coach that grows and makes his way up? Um, you know, I think that's more of a question for him, and I'm not I, – I think he could, but I don't know if that's the direction that he wants to go. So the answer is yes, but really that's a question for him. Like, do you want to go this direction? Um, and I think there's a few guys that can do that. Um, but, you know, I think guys like Tieran is a guy that has had a tremendous amount of passion and enthusiasm for – British basketball or GB basketball um, and try and not only developing his craft as a player, but his post career in how he's gone about things. This is an extremely intelligent young man, extremely uh, committed uh, person to like, not only his craft, but to, to basketball and growing uh, the game and uh, helping others and helping others help others, like, which is a huge thing. Like, he not only wants to talk to people about basketball, he wants to get those people talking to other people about it and how to grow it. Um, and so he's a guy that if he didn't, okay, so if he doesn't go into coaching, uh, he could be on the administrative side. Um, you look at somebody like Luol, Luol actually is coaching um, and he's more of an administrative role, but he took on the job of being the head coach with South Sudan. So um, uh, Mike, Mike Lemsley, again, I, I, only spoke with a few times, but he went into coaching. So I think that's one of the key things is there is a wealth of knowledge within the program or guys that have been through it uh, at one level or another that certainly can go in that direction. And I think it's a matter of speaking with each one of them as to, to where they are in their life and do they want to pursue something like that in the future. Let's talk a little bit about NBA before we let you go. I mean, team twenty, I mean, twenty-three seasons in the NBA, and you know, you got you know, championships with the Spurs under under Pop, and you know, being in the finals in, in Dallas with you know that great Dirk team in in two thousand and six on you know with Rick Carlisle, and yeah, I mean the players. I mean, you mentioned Dirk, you mentioned Tim Duncan. I mean, it's just there there are Hall of Famers left, right, and center. I mean, can you pick? I, I won't ask you to pick one. Who's your favorite players from from that stint that you've had the the pleasure and the uh, the, the the great fortune to work with? <laughs> that's that's a great question, and the answer is is no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you really cannot just pick one, and and I'll tell you why. For as good of for for as great of basketball players, all of those guys are. They're amazing people. Um, they're people that some you talk to more often than others, but a lot of them, when you see them, it just picks right back up. And what I mean by that is uh, Joe Johnson and Brandon Bass were part of the Team USA. And 
one of the things people have said about guys like a guy like Joe is that he's really quiet, um, you know, doesn't say a lot. Joe and I have had wonderful conversations through the years, and in particular on this last trip together to Puerto Rico. Um, you know, not only leading into it, but once we got there. Um, and since, we've had some good exchanges, uh, whether it's phone calls or text messages. Um, and just seeing where he is in his uh, career and his family life, uh, Brandon Bass, same thing. So to, to Joe, I was fortunate enough to coach and work with Joe in Brooklyn, and then here we are four, five, six, about seven years later, and it's just special to see him again and sort of rekindle that uh, relationship um, face-to-face. Uh, Brandon Bass, same thing. I was with Brandon in Dallas. And so, again, to see him and to see where his family is and um, to shoot him a text and just say, hey, what's, you know, what do you got going on right now? And maybe they've got a, an AAU tournament or they've got something that he's doing with his family or he's working out. Um, you know, that, that part of it with all of these guys like uh, Tim, Dirk, uh, you know, David Robinson, um, you know, like just reaching out to LaMarcus, uh, who, you know, made the decision to retire the other day. Like, mm. you know, I, I feel, you know, there's a sense of sadness that his, uh, that he's decided to retire because what a tremendous person, and what a tremendous basketball player and how much he's committed to the game. But one of the things I could tell is he's at peace with it. Like he knows this is the right decision under the circumstances that he's dealing with. And it, it represented to me the type of person that he's been um, since I first got to know him when he was in like his second or third year. And then I guess the other side of it is how old it makes me feel that I was with him in second and third year. And now he's played like 15 season and is retiring, <laughs> you know, but again, uh, I can go down the list of just, just special people that, you know, approach things a little bit differently than maybe the previous players, like um, being with Kevin Garnett, what an amazing infectious personality he has um, and being able to just spend time and listen to him. Um, not only when he was playing for us in Brooklyn, but also when he came in, he came into Milwaukee a few times and visited us and some of the players and just, just sitting on the court and listening to him talk to me about basketball or life or thoughts that he has and just listening, like what an amazing person and the things that he's not only accomplished but is going to accomplish and the impact a lot of these guys have on so many different lives. So the answer to your, the short answer is I cannot pick just one as much as I could just keep listening to you some of the special people that I've been able to be around they are also outstanding basketball players. I mean, you had so many amazing and fantastical experiences, you know, as, as an assistant coach in the NBA. But, you know, 2018, you get a shot at being the head coach. You're in 37 games. You're know, an interim head coach with the Bucks, And you get the playoffs. You know, you go 21-17, losing that first round, and, and, and then it's out. But you know, how... How do you look back on that? Because you know it's it's the dream, I guess, for a lot of coaches to be that head coach in the NBA in the world's best league. I mean, how do you view that that short spell that you you got to be the guy in charge of that team? 
I really appreciated the opportunity. Um, it was very difficult, uh, especially uh, under the circumstances which I became a head coach. Uh, that's that's very that's not easy at all. Um, but there is a responsibility um, to help the team move forward uh, and try to accomplish the goals that had been set out from the beginning. So. Uh, for as tough as it was, um, like I said, also appreciative to a certain degree. And, you know, what I hope is that there's an opportunity, like with the Great Britain program, I was able to, that became my program for those five years. And I, you know, would have continued doing it if that administration felt um, being able to uh, coach in summers, yet someone else coached the windows was the way to go. Um, but it wasn't, and it's it worked out fine. Um, so again, like you know, hopefully get the opportunity to have uh, a program that I can build from the beginning, so to speak. And uh, going to the game seven, uh, you know, against a Boston team that at that point had the previous year had been to the Eastern Conference Finals. They've been they went to the Eastern Conference Finals that year. Um, they missed a year and now have done it again. So it's a Boston team that's gone to the Eastern Conference Finals three out of the last four years, um, regardless who's been on the team. And, and I think uh, they they showed how uh, good they how well they play together. And I, I just remember, you know, going into the series and people were saying, well, maybe they can win. You know, maybe Milwaukee can win. And here we were uh, with a team that really wasn't even whole leading up to it. You know, Matthew Delavidovin, uh, Malcolm Brogdon had missed nine weeks, and they were able to play uh, in the second and final games re respectively before the season uh, ended and we started the playoffs and just thinking, okay, let's, you know, let's see what we can do because we don't know if these guys are full healthy or not and, you know, minute restrictions because of trying to keep them healthy. And there were so many different things that went on in that series. And I was proud of the guys to get to a game seven and um, all the guys that, uh, you know, were a part of it, like committing to it. And, and I know a lot of them aren't even there. Um, really, Chris and Giannis are the only two that are still um, on the team, but, uh, to take them to a game seven to be on their court, uh, that was a, a special opportunity. And, uh, you know, we had it down. The, it was a three-point game with about 10 minutes to go in the third quarter. Uh, they got it up to 12 uh, with about six minutes to go in the game and still kind of had a chance. And that, even with Giannis and Bled, Eric Bledsoe being in foul trouble. Um, so, a lot of special memories uh, from that group, but also just my time in Milwaukee in general. A lot of great people that I was able to work with. Coach Kidd is an amazing coach. I'm so excited that he got it. Uh, had the opportunity to win another championship uh, last year with the Lakers. Um, you know, so uh, I look back at that as a, as a great experience. Uh, something that helped me. Uh, even be prepared for being the head coach for Team USA when uh, Sean Ford uh, forwarded me that opportunity. And uh, hopefully all these things uh, keep building towards the next thing.
did you ever get a sense that there was something that you had to do to have a shot at getting the head coach job on a you know, the next season on a permanent basis or you know where did you read that situation going you know particularly going into that off season are you talking about the Milwaukee yes. situation yeah. yeah you know for me things happen like things happen so quickly that you really are more folks okay wait yeah you kind of say what just happened but what do we need to do um because there isn't really a lot of time to think so to speak like you're more like okay this is what's going on and this is what we need to do and so you're more focused on like stay in this moment and move this thing forward to try and accomplish the things that need to get done. Um, I had things going on in my life at that time that, you know, needed attention as well. And so, and it's not even something that uh, my family or I talk a lot about as much as I'm just proud of my family and the things that we got through at that point. Um, because it was a difficult time on a lot of levels. And um, so really it was, this is the task at hand. This is what we've got to get done. And so then it was a matter of moving forward from like, okay, so point of change, move it forward, try and, you know, get into the playoffs. Let's be successful. Um, then it was okay, uh, possibly uh, getting an or getting an opportunity to get the job on a full-time basis. Not really sure uh, what the mindset is, but you know, get the opportunity to interview. So definitely take it, um, and then go from there. So it really wasn't. It was never a hey, I'm gonna do A, B, C. Like I said it really, that's why having your own team from the beginning, like, and when I say that, I mean, you, you get a summer to prepare, you get a training camp, uh, you get a season. It's, there's, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of difficulties there. I get that, but there's, in a lot of ways, it's, it's easier because you're putting in the things exactly how you might do it. Um, even though you've been an assistant, you sh you get input too. And so, it's too difficult at that time. You really are just trying to get up to speed and go A, you know, get through A to B to C to D and move forward from there. I mean, you got to work with Giannis and he was you know, exceptional then, you know, even, even greater now with, you know, back-to-back -back MVPs. I mean, give us a flavor. I mean, seeing someone like him in practice and seeing his, you know, his incredible exponential growth that he's had. You know, what, what is unique in his DNA and his caliber as a player and, you know, and how he approaches the game that's made him the player that he's become? Well, one of the things that you see from, I mean, first of all, to, to get to the NBA level, it, you have to be a special basketball player. Um, it's such a fine line for so many guys. Um, to be an NBA player as opposed to um a guy that's in and out of the league, um, but even though that player is really, really good or, um, you know, you, you know what I mean in terms of how difficult it is. 
the thing that's really interesting with Giannis um, is how much he absorbs the circumstances or the situation around him and how much he embraces the opportunity to try to get better. Um, that was, you know, we arrived in Milwaukee and the team had won 15 games the previous year. And they didn't really turn over. The team did not turn over a lot. In fact, I think um, year to year, I think it was like 11 players on the team that won 15 games were back on the team that we coached that next year. And we won 41 games, went to the playoffs, um, you know, had a significant amount of injuries and uh, a lot of growth that had to take place with young player, a young player like Giannis. Um, you know, Jabari got injured that year, so we didn't have, like, both guys, um, you know, it, it was just an unfortunate situation where we didn't have both guys. And, they, and when you don't have both of them out there together, that's just another opportunity missed for an experience for them to play with one another and including Chris Middleton too. So um, with Giannis at year, you could just like, one of the things that a lot of people talked about was, you know, Giannis not shooting threes. And the reality was it wasn't as if we said, Giannis, you're never going to shoot threes. Like that's what people wanted to make the narrative. Our approach was that Giannis, 30, like 33, 34, 35 in his rookie year. But the team won 15 games. And so similar to what I saw in San Antonio, like with Tony Parker, there was a year where Tony was, um, you know, really praised for being one of the best uh, finishers in the paint. And his field goal percentage was not only one of the highest in the leagues, but he might have been the best paint finisher in the league that year um, which was a big deal but one of the things that was discussed was Eric you could see it he just didn't shoot a lot of threes that year and he was five six years into his career whereas when you know coach Kidd thought about this he looked at it as okay how do we help Giannis and help the team and so like we said we want you to evolve into taking meaningful threes, threes that uh, will help win games not only now but potentially in the playoffs as you grow year over year over year. And so this is the three-point shot is just an example for him because it's not something that he has to do to impact the games. It's, it's not, and, and we've seen that. But uh, as you saw his during our time there with his three-point shooting, each year, not only did his attempts go up, but so did his three-point field goal percentage. And that was one of the many things that, as you saw him evolving, that he was learning to do. Like, for example, there were situations, like preseason one time, we decided to see if he could play the point guard position. And we realized, okay, probably not ideal to just make him be the point guard. <laughs> Well, then we got to a situation in the middle of one year where all our point guards were injured. We had O.J. Mayo starting 
at what would be considered the point guard position. And so we just made the decision on how we were going to bring the ball up the floor, whether it was a miss, whether it was a make, uh, whether somebody who rebounded the ball and how we would get the ball into our offense and how quickly we would. And part of that was just Giannis's evolution as a player um, and his ability to handle the ball. And so his work ethic, his attention to detail, uh, the notes that he takes mentally um, and literally, um, you know, physically writing notes, uh, the things that he does to make himself a better player and to make his teammates around him better uh, is, is a tribute to the work ethic that he has, which is extremely high. And what a player. I mean, being as best as possibly still to come. Um, you're 52 now, a mere fledgling. Um, you know, having been out of the league a couple of years, what, apart from the USA spells, what are you doing to kind of keep, keep coaching ready, keeping you know, engaged? Yeah, so pre-COVID, I spent quite a bit of time uh, visiting coaches um, and watching different programs on all levels. Uh, went to several NBA teams, um, went to several colleges, uh, actually watched some prep stuff, um, and just sort of evaluated uh, what people were doing, uh, what was best, um, what were things that might be beneficial um or knew that I could sort of add to my repertoire. Um, I did some camps and some clinics, uh, did some clinics in Florida, did a clinic in Florida, uh, went over to Spain, uh, or excuse me, um, to France, uh, did a clinic there, uh, met Coach Collet, uh, which was, you know, an honor to watch him, uh, the talk that he did, um, did some work with some kids over there as well, um, in some camps, um, done some here in Arizona, um, you know, so, and a lot of that again, pre COVID, um, post COVID done several podcasts. Um, but this obviously is the best one, Um, (laughs) naturally, um, but, uh, have organized a lot of, um, you know, well, and done some virtual clinics, I should say as well. Um, continue to watch the game, uh, follow the game, uh, put together a lot of my notes, um, you know, philosophies, uh, organize different things, uh, you know, put a lot of files that I've gone through uh, with coaching and seeing what different coaches have done throughout the years, still watching the game, putting different things together, um, talking to other coaches, seeing what they see. Uh, you know, it's amazing uh, and having said all of that, I've also tried to make sure that I maximize time with family uh, because it is amazing. You still can get consumed by this, and I want to make sure that, uh, you know, I don't disregard them at all. And so I've uh, been able to coach some of their games uh, and some of the things that they've done. Uh, son golfs, and I've been able to caddy for him a few times and uh, coach my daughter's teams and uh, my son's team. So getting that experience as well. And what I'll tell you is it's, it's also very enlightening coach, um, that level as well, because there's an attention to detail that you have that albeit different from the NBA. Um, it's important. You learn very important aspects of, you know, how to, uh, deal with people. Um, 
you know, especially in, in there, like I said, they're extremely young and it's a totally different circumstance, but there are things that can help you as, as a coach, like the patience that you, you need to exude um, and the growth that you can have there. So uh, I've also been able to host a radio show. Um, I've started a mentorship business with a few different people. Um, so I've, I've kept very busy um, and I've, I've appreciated it. Uh, but definitely kept myself very busy. And is is the hope to get back in the NBA? Is that is that the the kind of top of the priority list? You know, if if, if it comes calling, everything else, those other sidelines get dropped, or what, what's the, what's the grand plan? Yeah, no, definitely. I, I I would love to get back in the NBA and uh, you know be working with a team and uh, you know a coaching staff. But yes, that that definitely is it. I have. But I have also, you know, spoken to different people about other possibilities along the way, uh, things that maybe you didn't think about uh, while you're going through the grind. But, you know, definitely would love to get back in and be working with the team. Well, we hope you, that comes true. Um, thanks for stopping by us. It's, it's always is a pleasure and always was a pleasure um, talking to you when with, with you with GB. And, um Good luck to you and the family, and uh, let's hope there's an exciting next chapter coming up. Well, I appreciate it, Mark. Always enjoy speaking with you. Appreciate uh, our conversations throughout the years, and uh, it was a good to be on with you today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Joe. That is it for this edition of the MVP Cast. You can get all our previous editions at MVP247.com. You can also get them on your preferred podcast provider if you want to reach out to me as ever get me on twitter at mark Gripple. another edition of the mvp cast coming very soon but for me mark woods thank you so much for listening and it's bye for now